Good morning and happy Lord's Day to you. Uh, glad that you're here this morning and glad that you are joining us uh, through our live stream uh, broadcast. Good morning and happy Lord's Day. The passage this morning as we make our way through Mark is uh, still in Mark chapter 1. And we'll begin this morning uh, looking at verses 14 through uh, 28. Uh, little theologians, it may be that some of you for lunch today will be setting the table. I don't know if setting the table is something that's, uh, that you do on a regular basis, but uh, think about setting a table. But think about setting a table for a lot of people and set everything, every dish that you have, every spoon that you have, every fork that you have, put all of it on the table. Set that table like it's never been set before. Hopefully you understand what I'm uh, going on about later in the sermon. Uh, a special welcome to you this morning, little theologians. Again, our passage is from Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 14. Would you please join me in prayer before we read God's word? Father, thank you so much for your great mercy. Thank you so much for coming to us in Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for saving us by your Holy Spirit. Thank you so much for being with us every time we gather around this Holy Scripture. Thank you so much for your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 14. <clears throat> now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats, mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man who, who, with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. This is the word of our Lord. Well, this is a glorious passage in many ways. 
at least a couple of very familiar scenes to us, but let's not forget what launches these three scenes into action. It's nothing less than the arrest and imprisonment of John the Baptist, and that, I think all of us would agree, is no happy matter. But that event actually serves to launch the action of our passage. In Mark, he quotes Malachi and Isaiah. He's done so already to show us that John's ministry is a ministry of what? Preparing. That he is, his is an essential ministry, a part of God's purpose, but it's preparatory nonetheless. He's preparing the hearts of Jewish people for their promised Messiah. And now that John the Baptist is in prison, the Messiah himself makes himself known. A few things before we uh, dive in here. It's actually quite important for us to notice that these three scenes are directed by Jesus alone. That might sound obvious. But when you look at these scenes, Jesus, he's leading and directing every single action. Just as a quick illustration of this, he comes into Galilee. He passes alongside the shoreline. He goes into a specific city on a specific day in a specific building. He's launched by John's arrest, and Mark is connecting the scenes together, but Jesus clearly leads each and every scene. In fact, uh, I can say this to those of you who care for grammar. There's a lot of verbs in these three scenes, and a lot of them are attributed to the work of Jesus. He preaches, he sees, he speaks, he calls, he teaches. His leadership is everywhere, and Mark wants us to see that as he has uh, placed these three scenes together. But there's something else that we need to notice. And we need to notice that the scenes are directed by Jesus himself, but we also need to notice how effortlessly Jesus exercises his leadership. And this will take some explaining. And look what Jesus is doing. Jesus is walking. And Jesus is watching, you know, watching those fishermen. And then Jesus is speaking, but we're not told that Jesus is speaking loudly. He's speaking. The actions of Jesus are actually serene. They're gentle, and even progressively so. Now, this you might not have picked out, but Jesus speaks, but he speaks very little, doesn't he? And in fact, in these three scenes, he says fewer and fewer words. He opens with 14 words in the Greek, and then eight words, and then four words. In fact, when we look at these three scenes together, uh, really the most excitable moments, the, the moments where the volume goes up and there's activity, those most excitable moments are actually not, well, they're not from Jesus, are they? In verse 26, an unclean spirit convulses a man and makes him cry out in a loud voice. Mark is explicit about that. And then in verse 27, the, the people around Jesus, they're actually amazed and they're saying uh, to themselves or among themselves, uh, clearly they're speaking aloud, what is this? A new teaching with authority. You see, the, the real noisiness of these three scenes is not from Jesus, and yet there Jesus is, quietly, serenely directing everything that unfolds. Well, I think that's worth noticing. Because look what we find in verse 28. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout 
all the surrounding region of Galilee. This quiet man walking and watching and teaching, speaking with so few words. Well, his fame, it grows into the entire region of Galilee. And much further, his fame is with us here this morning. Well, this is all the more intriguing when we consider the great work of Jesus in these three scenes. He's announcing that in God's timing, the kingdom of God is nearer than it has ever been before. And he invites all to enter this kingdom by believing in the gospel. We want to spend a fair amount of time in just those first two verses, verses 14 and 15. And there we want to consider this invitation that Jesus makes to enter the kingdom of God. But then Jesus moves on, and it's not merely an invitation to enter the kingdom of God. He gives us some associations with that kingdom of God, how that kingdom of God works. And he's going to say that there are promises or a promise associated with the kingdom of God. Uh, that is, that these uh, men will become fishers of men. That kingdom of God will expand. And there's not only promises associated with the kingdom of God. There's actually a threat associated with the kingdom of God. And that, that hot reaction at the very end of our passage. But let's begin with the invitation to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And he's saying a couple of things here. First, John told us what? He told us to hurry up. John the Baptist says, get ready. And Jesus, he's saying, well, the time is fulfilled. The days of preparation, Jesus seems to be saying, are actually done. Now is the time for which you are preparing. All of world history has actually led to this very moment. Have you ever been waiting for a big event, a wedding, an important letter or email, the birth of a baby? Jesus says, now, now is that event. Well, uh, now is time for what? Well, time for, as Jesus describes, the nearness of the kingdom of God. And Jesus is very clear about that. All of these days have been preparing for this moment when the kingdom of God comes near. And in fact, the word that Mark uses, in fact, it's a word that Jesus himself preached, the nearness of, of the kingdom of God, is actually a very common word. It's a word that's used to describe physical location. And so when Jesus says the kingdom of God is near, what does he mean? The kingdom of God is near, it's close, it's right here. Do you see it? You can almost touch it. Well, that's pretty remarkable. But of course, we need to pause and ask, well, okay, all of world history has led to this moment, the nearness of the kingdom of God, but what exactly is this kingdom of God? I mean, you know, your uh, memory serves well enough. We're so uh, new in Mark's gospel. You know that Mark has not used this expression before. And in fact, in Mark's gospel, I'll tell you in advance, uh, he will never talk about God as king in particular. But Jesus preaches this, and Mark tells us the content of Jesus' words. And so, uh, what then does Mark want us to hear in the words of Jesus? Well, let's uh, state this, first of all, 
that the kingdom of God is not uh, a plot of land, a, a territory with certain boundaries that would mark it out as a kingdom. And this large plot of ground actually uh, comes down from heaven and hovers just over our heads so that we can almost teach it. That's not what's meant by the kingdom of God, a territorial realm. The kingdom, rather, is this. The kingdom of God is his sovereign reign, his actual power to rule sovereignly. His royal and righteous influence as the creator and sustainer of all things. That is actually what his kingdom is. It's his rule, his authority, his power, his influence. All of that concentrated reign is coming and is near. We might be able to say it this way, although if I'm honest, every metaphor seems to fall a bit flat. The kingdom of God is actually the evidence of God's own reality. It may be we could jump forward here. We could ask uh, each of us this question, do you believe that this God is distant and disconnected? Do you believe that this God is far from you, unable to touch you, unable to grab at you, as it were? Well, at the very last scene, well, what does the demon say? What have you to do with us, Jesus? And it may be that we are asking ourselves that, God, what do you have to do with me? What do you have to do with any of us? I have no evidence for you and your existence. The kingdom of God is in this manner the evidence of his reality that he's really, that he's really there. And sometimes in Alaska during the heart of winter, a warm Chinook wind will occasionally uh, blow through on an afternoon. And the temperature, it goes up. Now, it may seem very slight, so we go from 10 below to 5 below or 4 below, or we go from 0 to maybe 8 or 9. It may seem slight, but when a Chinook wind comes, it's noticeable, and people actually talk about it. Wasn't that wonderful? It's blazing cold. I know it's a wrong metaphor, but it's absolutely tremblingly cold, but a Chinook is wonderful. It's warm wind. Who cares where it comes from? It blows through, and it stays around the whole afternoon, and it's noticed. And Jesus, he says that the reign of God is near. Can you feel its warmth? In a few verses, a demon will indeed feel it and actually be terrified at how remarkable it is that we walk through life and we ignore that warm Chinook breeze. You know, in three chapters, Mark is going to describe the kingdom of God as being not only near, but actually present and growing and expanding. You see, make no mistake this morning, that warm Chinook is here. One scholar says that in Jesus of Nazareth, the kingdom of God makes a personal appearance. Have you noticed? Do you feel it? Are you in the presence of those who are members of that kingdom telling you about this warm Chinook? Would you sit, rest, and feel? Well, Jesus does more here, doesn't he, than simply announcing the nearness of the kingdom of God. He actually invites us to enter that reign. He comes into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. 
And while part of his preaching ministry is certainly to announce the nearness of God, the greater part of his preaching ministry is to describe the grounds for which anyone might enter that reign. There's a beautiful picture of this uh, in the work of the poet George MacDonald, where he appeals to us to desire to get behind that north wind, not merely feel the north wind, but to get behind it. Where does it come from? Well, this is rather important. Jesus, he actually tells us how to enter that kingdom of God. What's rather remarkable is that Jesus assumes that we're not in that kingdom of God. How's that for starting with an offense? You see, Jesus assumes that left to our own, we are actually kingdom outsiders. We may feel the warm Chinook wind, but we aren't a part of God's kingdom. We might sense an influence of God's people, of God's church in this world. But we're still outsiders unless we enter through Jesus. We don't actually belong to the kingdom of Jesus. We need an invitation. We need uh, the means being made for us to enter that kingdom. And more crucially, what Jesus means in assuming that uh, we are kingdom outsiders is, well, it means that we are a part of our own kingdom, an opposing kingdom, an enemy kingdom. To not be in his kingdom is to have our own kingdom. That's what Jesus understands when we say to ourselves, I have power and influence over my own life. Uh, Watch me master my own life. Watch me master my own destiny. Watch me create for myself my own future, energized by my own purpose. You see, the gospel says that that position is a dangerous one indeed. That kingdom will not last. We see a wonderful picture of that at the very end. But Jesus says that if we wish to enter the kingdom of God, we must repent and believe in the gospel. As we know, John has already, John the Baptist, demanded repentance from the most privileged people on the planet, those whose history was closely intertwined with the revelation of God's will on earth. You understand I'm speaking about the Jewish people, the people of Abraham that have had front row seats to God's workings in time and space. But John the Baptist says that wasn't enough. They needed to repent, to re-enter the wilderness, to relearn what, that they are nothing apart from God. And on the one hand, this required an ethical change of direction, and so God uh, graciously removed the entanglements of the world when he placed them in the wilderness. But on the other hand, this required a change of mind, an altered understanding of their world, who it is exactly that they belong to, not to themselves, but to the one who is their life, breath, and existence, the one who's literally feeding them and sustaining them in the wilderness. Well, Jesus is asking that same thing of us, though we are not people who have had front row seats to God's workings in world history. We are not a Jewish people. I say that's true for uh, the large majority of us. But that very thing that John the Baptist was asking, Jesus is asking of us to acknowledge our own kingdom enterprise. We've invested an awful lot in making us who we are. I've invested a lot in making me who I am, expanding self, uh, building a purpose and a future for self. And Jesus is saying, that means nothing. And so, repent. 
And more on that later, but inseparably paired to repentance from your own good news, which is really no good news at all because it is not a kingdom at all. Paired to repentance from your own good news is to believe in the good news of the kingdom of God. This is not an intellectual acquiescence. This is not a nodding of the head and admitting, oh yes, Jesus, you are right, I believe. It is a falling upon the face. It is the laying down of weapons. It's not a work. It's a stopping of all work. It's a ceasing of your activity. It's falling before Jesus and acknowledging that his kingdom is the real kingdom and yours is but a dangerous, offensive charade. We could say it this way, as one scholar does. If repentance denotes that which one turns from, belief denotes that which one turns to. Faith is being done with your kingdom enterprise. Faith is submitting to his kingdom enterprise. And when together, repentance and faith is actually pain and joy mixed together in a cosmic, mysterious way. It's surrender from but it's also surrender to. And when this happens, it is not just peace that one enters into, it is true peace, eternal peace, peace that cannot be broken. And everything about your former kingdom, well, it looks counterfeit because the kingdom of God is so much better than your own. One brief example The kingdom of God is a kingdom that is not dependent upon the circumstances of your trials and your struggles. The kingdom of God is one in which you can have joy and peace when everything around you is collapsing. It's a kingdom that is so much better than any other kingdom. And almost to uh, emphasize this, Jesus offers a promise associated with the kingdom of God in verses 16 through 20. It's stated most succinctly, Jesus says in verse 17, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. It's Simon and Andrew, brothers, they're either in a boat or at the water's edge and they're casting a net into the sea and they leave that. And James and his brother John are sitting in their boat mending a net and they leave that. That great enterprise of fishing is on both of these pairs' minds. That enterprise is catching fish. Now, Jesus likely knew these four individuals already. Mark, of course, he doesn't tell us in his gospel. And these men have uh, most certainly already repented and believed in the gospel. But there's something else that has happened. They've become enticed by something other than catching fish. Their understanding of the world has already altered. They belong to the kingdom of God. And that kingdom, Jesus is telling them, is the kind of kingdom that actually multiplies. It's not just about themselves. It grows just as, well, a net grows when it's filled with fish. It grows just as a bank account grows in the employments of these fishermen. It grows in the same way that a family might grow because this family has financial livelihood through fishing. They're believers. They love Jesus. They have entered that kingdom. But Jesus is teaching them something about that kingdom that is remarkably hopeful. This business of theirs, fishing, well, there's also a business of the kingdom. And it, too, is fishing. 
the promise associated with the kingdom of God is that there is a message of invitation that catches others. This is Paul's admonition in the beginning of his letter to the Romans when he says that the, go- that the gospel is the power of God to save. And these four fishermen, and hopefully us here this morning, are being reminded of that. That while not all who were called will come, just as not all fish of the sea seem to uh, slither their way into these four men's nets, some are. An entrance into the kingdom is for many, not just for you, and not just for this congregation, not just for this denomination. Entrance into the kingdom of God is for others. And in this way, while the kingdom of God was near in A.D. 30, just as Jesus began his public ministry, well, the kingdom of God is still near. Do you recall how John said to be prepared for the coming of Jesus? Well, there's a new kind of preparation for those who have repented and believe in the gospel, and that is to be prepared to preach that gospel. Be prepared to give a reason to others for the hope within you. Be prepared to make Jesus known with your life, with your actions, with your speech. Be prepared also to die for the name of Jesus. (laughs) One of the great promises of the gospel is that you, a mere servant in his kingdom, may point to Jesus with your life and your speech and watch others enter that kingdom. Well, this is not your work. Look what Jesus says. I will make you this fishers of men. Uh, This is not your work. It is the work of Jesus Christ himself to enlarge the kingdom of God through the power of the gospel. And then paired next to this, this beautiful promise associated with the kingdom of God, look at the next scene. There's actually a threat associated with the kingdom of God in verses 21 through 28. There's a certain force of the words that Jesus uses here. Uh, He uses force when he says repent. He uses force when he says believe. He uses force when he says follow. This kingdom, while it is expressed by someone who is gentle and meek and lowly, well, there's force in this kingdom. One Sabbath day, Two people, two beings, enter a synagogue in Capernaum. One is a beloved son of God whom God is well pleased. And the other is a wicked spirit, an angel created by God who's nonetheless rebelled against God. And when these two meet in this synagogue, in this city, one is preaching the gospel offering entrance into the kingdom of God, that kingdom which is near. And entrance to that kingdom of God is through repentance and faith. The kingdom of God is near. Enter it, he says. That's the one who is preaching. And the other, the one who is not preaching, is noticeably agitated. This is a member of the kingdom of Satan. He cannot stand this message. He will not repent. He will believe, and he does, but he will not have faith. He will not lay his enterprise aside and accept the enterprise of the king. He will not set aside one kingdom for another. He will instead say, what have you to do with us? 
Well, I want you to just think about the authority of, of the teaching of Jesus. I mean, we see in the scene that uh, people are uh, roused to attention because of the authority of Jesus. And what do we imagine it is about the teaching of Jesus that would uh, arouse their great attention in that authority? And do you think it might be his eloquence? He just speaks so clearly, so beautifully. Do you think it might be the passion of Jesus? Lots of gestures or something animated about him. Maybe that's what it is that arouses their attention to see that this is someone teaching with authority. It could be logic. The logic of a professor who is a professing believer who uh, connects the truths of the gospel in a logically coherent way. It could be just his, his earnestness. What do you think it is? Well, you need to know this, that a Pharisee or a rabbi or anyone else can actually teach with authority, of course. But that authority is never the kind of authority that Jesus has. That authority is never authority that comes from the good news of the gospel. Entrance into the kingdom of God through grace alone. Entrance into the kingdom of God through a man. Instead, the kind of thing that we recognize as authority in teaching, it's something, it's something entirely different. <laughs> you know, when Jesus teaches with authority, what's meant? It's meant that he's teaching that entrance into a relationship with God is through a person. The authority of Jesus is the man of Jesus. It's who he is. It's, it's not his eloquence or passion or logic or earnestness. It's the fact that he is that one through, we, through whom we must enter the kingdom of God. Because to mark the gospel is a person. The authority of Jesus is his insistence that he is himself the good news. He is himself entrance into the kingdom of God. <laughs> and you know that one agitated individual who is listening to Jesus preach the gospel, he actually understands that much. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. No one talks about Jesus like that in Mark's gospel or any other gospel. The one who is most agitated is the one who knows the most. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus is righteous. He's God himself, and he's standing before this crowd in the flesh. He is perfect, and he is the good news. You know, Jesus speaks then, doesn't he? Speaks in a way that we can actually uh, hear him. These are the words that Mark says we're to walk away with. And they're just four words in the Greek. He says, be silent and come out of him. Be silent and come out of him. A very a herald of the kingdom of Satan, a member of the kingdom of Satan. And with four words, Jesus fells him. To those who belong to God, they will never be rejected by Jesus. They will never be told, Revelation tells us, go out from my kingdom. To come to God through faith and repentance is to never be rejected by God. And those who refuse to repent and to believe, they'll never enter that kingdom. But something else those who refuse to the very end will actually be told, get out, leave my presence forever. 
You see, God's kingdom never ends. But every other kingdom does. Every other kingdom is circumscribed by the kingdom of God. And you can refuse that warm wind of the gospel message. The evidence of the kingdom of God as the kingdom of God expands individually but corporately as well. And you can refuse and refuse and refuse. But God's kingdom will never end. And there will be a time where you stand before Jesus and he says to you, be still and get out. Because you see what Jesus is doing here, Jesus is announcing that in God's timing, the kingdom of God is nearer than it ever has been. And he invites us to enter this kingdom by believing in the gospel. And I want to encourage you this morning to think about God's good grace as we come to this table. This table is actually a picture of our eternal life with God. Uh, To be sure, right now we uh, struggle and we hurt As Christians, we have repented and we believe in the gospel, and yet life is not exactly how we would structure it. In fact, we may feel a special uh, tinge of persecution in ways that we haven't before. But there will come a time where we are with God at that very table of the King. That's what your faith and repentance gives birth to, even if we don't feel it right now. But here, then, is an opportunity for us to come and get a foretaste in the life of the church, in the profession of faith that we hear from brothers and sisters, and a repetition of the gospel in the pulpit and in the fellowship of the church and in the table reminding us of who we are as a people who, by God's grace, have been brought into his kingdom. Would you join me in prayer before we come to the table this morning? Our precious Jesus, we thank you for your power. We thank you that by your power, we have entered a kingdom that does not belong to us, but a kingdom into which we belong. And we thank you that we will uh, never be uh, dragged out of that kingdom, shut out of that kingdom. We will be with you forever. We thank you, Jesus, for the gospel. In your name, amen.